You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello, I'm Stuart Goldsmith and welcome back to the show. I'm sorry it's been such a long break. Haven't we all been busy? Uh, Let's get stuck in straight away. This is the first of the live Comedian's Comedian recordings that I made in Edinburgh this year at the Gilded Balloon during the Edinburgh Fringe. Uh, Here is a wonderful comedian, Sarah Pascoe. Would you please welcome, with a huge amount of uh, love and enthusiasm and appreciation, the wonderful Sarah Pascoe. Okay, I should probably stay standing until you get there. Take a seat, Sarah. There we are. <laughs> Lovely to have you here. Thanks for Lovely to be here. Thank you for having uh, me. You'll need to forgive me for a slightly weird stagey capacity of it. I've been used to... Re- I, I normally interview people in their, in their places where they write. Oh. Where, where do you normally write? Do you have a particular place? No. I don't have a particular place that okay. I write. I, um, all different places. I write a lot um, around other people. I know some people need quiet. Okay. I can do editing and I can make myself sit at a computer and work on things, but essentially I like, like public transport or busy cafes, okay. children's parks. <laughs> Creepy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, slide, eh? <laughs> Very inspiring. Okay. okay, so you and... Let's. I, I never know quite where to start because I don't want to start with something like, where, yeah, how did you start doing comedy? But oh. heck, bucket, it's the first one. Let's do that. Yes. What was your What's your origin story as a comedian? Okay, so this is interesting, but it's going to make it sound like if none of you have ever seen me do stand up, I have been practicing and I am a writer now. But when you hear why I do it, you feel like, hmm, not really a reason to change career. Basically, I went out with a boy. And <laughs> <laughs> he was a stand up comedian. You won't have heard of him. And, but you, um, you, you actually name him in your show, don't you? Oh no, different boy. A different boy, different okay, boy. sorry. No, I name okay. a boy in my show. Oh, it's so mysterious. 915. <laughs> uh, assembly George Square. Um, now, the, the went of the boy who did stand up and he was an open mic comic. I had never seen comedy. I was very snooty about comedy. I thought that stand up was improvised. I had seen three people on video Eddie Azard, Billy Connolly, and Harry Hill, and I thought they were improvising. And uh, I thought that comedy in terms of like plays and stuff was really just frivolous and stupid when there were so many serious things going on in the world that we should all discuss and campaign about. And then I went out with this boy who did stand-up comedy and I went to see open mic nights and I found it very interesting because it was so bad and <laughs> clearly written. And I was like, oh! And then this boy broke my heart 
And I was in that stage where you have all of this energy all of the time. And so I did loads of things that scared me. Like I had always had a fear of water on my head because of a bad school trip I went on. And, uh, which is in my show as well. I was going to say, see, see show for <laughs> And um, I did stand-up just as an experiment and I got really drunk and I'd written five minutes about um, how High School the Musical would make you really upset if you were a child and you thought other people were having that fun of time at school. <laughs> and they actually, hey, this has gone down a lot better <laughs> than it did five years ago. And so I'd written about something that's happened on an inset day at school with, uh, between two pupils that I won't name. Um, and but basically he fingered her behind the cricket pavilion <laughs> and um, they were caught by the teachers as they were showing people around and so I wrote that up as if it was a musical but not singing anything but just saying and then, the, then there'll be the there was a great song in the drama club which was about status and levels like it was like that and people smiled at me and on the way home I realised that everything in my life without my knowledge had been preparing me to do stand up everything I'd ever done. I, I'm not a funny person in real life. I'm hilarious <laughs> when people are looking at me. No, I'm, I, I never thought, I'm not one of those people that's ever been told, oh yeah, you're a clown. I never used humour as a way of getting out of things. But I think everything I'd ever done in my life had prepared me to wanting to talk to people about things that I thought. Yes. So you something you refer to in the show without wanting to give anything away is you doing assemblies at school. Yes. And you were quite a serious at school, you were a campaigner, yeah. you wanted to transmit information to people. Yeah, all the time. And I always thought that was acting I wanted to be. And I always thought that I had to be someone else to do those things. And then this discovery of stand-up. And also, I had been an actor since I was 18. And in acting, you have to work really, really hard to find your own work if you don't have an agent. And I didn't have an agent for 10 years until I did stand-up comedy. And um, I wrote so lessons... Note to actors listening to this, that's not necessarily the way to do it. Stop it. Yeah. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, the front page. <laughs> Tomorrow, everyone has yeah. now become a comedian. Um, oh. Sorry. No, that's all right. No, I forgot what I was saying. Oh, yeah. And then, but basically what I realised is that... Um, so all of the energy that I used to put into writing emails and letters and begging people to see me or going to see other people's plays and waiting after us. I love your theatre company. I don't have an agent. How can I write to you? That kind of thing. Stand up is so much easier because you ring a guy who's weird, <laughs> whose number is in time out, and you say, can I come and do five minutes? And he says yes to you and 20 other people. And then you go and do it. And I, like, yes, all the time. Like rather than acting, which is like months and months and months. And people don't even reply to emails no. or letters. And that was really addictive because suddenly all the energy I was putting into something. And also, you get better at stand-up the more you do it. Yes, it's actually, very visible, isn't it? It's a very yeah, visible kind of curve. Because you can do it all the time. So if you do seven gigs a week, you get better quicker than people who do one gig every two weeks. And again, that's really addictive. Yeah. To actually feel something rewarding you for the energy you put into it. You're learning a craft. Um, which is another thing. The odd thing about stand-up is that you have to learn this craft in front of people. But like, it would be ideal if, I think for me, I think like eight years, which is three years from now, and then I would like people to watch what I was doing. Because yeah. then I think I'd be more in control of it. Yes, if you could somehow that practice, sense. Yeah, you can only you can only do stand up, can't you, by yeah. doing it in front of an audience. Whereas if I was gonna Wouldn't it be good if you yeah. could then erase all of their memories after eight years' worth and go, yeah. now I'll start. Yeah, well you can in a way, because then maybe if you do a really great show after eight years, <laughs> everyone's like, ah, oh, she was working towards that. Yeah. <laughs> now it all makes sense. Because <laughs> um, if I was painting, I wouldn't 
the first time I painted, I wouldn't come out here with my easel and say, hey guys. <laughs> so blue, does that look like the sky? I think um, going to be pretty amazing at this. Yeah. So uh, everyone watch. Yeah. yeah, and then every day, just, okay, I'm going to have another go. Okay, does it look like a cow or a horse? Okay, it's still looking like a cow. Right, don't worry. Next year, it's a bit horsier. It's a bit, well, you can see where I'm going with this. Um, which is what we have to do with stand-up. But then this is why I think people are fascinated in that process, about that process. They get to see it happen. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there's nothing more exciting than watching a really new comedian. And you can see that they're new and that they're nervous and they've learned it and they're not quite at home or something happens and it distracts them. But they're doing stuff and you're thinking, oh, this is brilliant. Mm -hmm. I've never seen anyone do this. You're going to be brilliant. And that's really exciting. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very, very guilty of whenever I see that quality. And you know, I was at Latitude Festival earlier this year and there was a, a person that I saw on stage doing like a sort of a new act. It wasn't quite a new act competition, it was like the Chortle competition, I think. And I just can't help myself from running up to acts that I think are going to be exciting, going, just so you know, I've been doing this for about seven years. You're going to be amazing. You're going to be so much better than me. Just don't ever take any advice from anyone and be brilliant and ignore everything. Oh, God, you're great. Like, you, really, you really try not to do that. But at the same time, you, when you, you see it, to. you go, oh, wow. But do you remember people doing that to you? No one ever did that. You never forget it. And then because there are so many times where you don't do well at gigs, because you can't, doesn't matter how good you are, exciting, mm -hmm. you, go have, you go to gigs where the situation is wrong or you're in a bad way or there's no communication between you and the audience, it just doesn't work. And those things, like Richard Herring did a very similar thing to me very early on. And you're yeah. like, is Richard Herring yeah. from Fist of Fun? Yeah. And like, he knows who I am and told me he thought I was good. And then that just overrides all of those things that can keep you going. So I think it's really important to tell people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Something you, something you might have touched on there with the idea of uh, not being able to, to practice, or you know, this yeah. idea of right, like being like painting a picture, yeah. uh, is something that I often struggle with. Uh, which is that stand-up comedy is so ethereal. You don't get a picture at the end of the day. You know, at the end of your gig, all you do, all you have as a memory of it is your memory and the people's memories who are there. And then the next morning you wake up and go, was it really that good? Or fortunately, sometimes you think it can't have been that bad. You know, because <laughs> yeah. it because it no longer exists. And I often feel quite jealous of people in other art forms like painting or video making or filmmaking, whatever, sculpture, because they have a thing that they can prove and they go, see, that's my thing and it will always exist. Yeah. I made a bronze head and it'll outlive me. Well, well, which my I, I think theory about this is that, um, so there's a personality type, but there's obviously a spectrum of it, but there's a certain kind of person who chooses comedy rather than sculpture or a different form where you have something to show at the end of it. And that's mm -hmm. because I don't think we'll ever be satisfied. Now, so I would say people, people I've met who do comedy are people who could pretty much do anything very, very bright people, very, very hard-working. Yeah, um, not like these chumps. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but, there, but there's a sense in them that they will never think they're good enough for anything, and they pick something you cannot win at. You do it forever. Okay. You can be Steve Martin, but you'll still sometimes have a bad gig. It's such a leveller. You can be the richest, most famous person, almost in a way, then you have to live up to that all the time. Yes. There's something, there's something really masochistic about, I will never be good enough at this. Yes, and so you're suggesting... I'll never have anything to show for it, and it's like yeah. toilet paper, it's gone. People don't remember <laughs> laughing. If you, okay, say over a 20-minute set, so you go to a club, your first five minutes is amazing, and they are laughing, yeah. and you're like, I am owning this, and it's brilliant, and then for some reason it gets a bit quiet, so you go a bit in your head, start thinking, oh, what was it, was it because I was talking about buses? Okay, I'm going to try something else. You do something else, and then they kind of sense you shift, and then suddenly the room is silent, and then you go, oh, crap. 
and then you carry on like you haven't noticed. <laughs> and it's still going great, and I'm sure I can win you back. And then at the end, all of those people think you are shit and bad at your job. No one goes, well, we really laughed in the first five minutes. We were yeah. really laughing then, and actually, I think she did all of our laughs at the first five minutes. We, we just used it all up then. I think we read them out over 20 minutes. Yeah. She was actually very good. It's not, they don't even give you, the, don't they don't even give you the, the, the grace of going, well, she was a one-hit wonder. Yeah. Like you would with a band or with someone, foot, with someone uh, like a footballer whose career has kind of gradually gone down the toilet. You go, well, in the early days. You don't get that in that 20 minutes, don't you? No. But I think that's interesting that you, you look at it from that way round. Whereas to me, I've always thought, how unlucky is it that the job I've got is something that is ethereal that I can never pitch down. And actually, you're suggesting, yeah, that's probably because I'm masochistic. No, I've chosen something you I can never win. You didn't go to the at. job centre after university, and they went, okay, um, we've done your little test, and uh, yeah. you've got to be a comic. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would be. It would be sorry. Sorry. <laughs> this is going to be difficult and expensive. And not only are you going to lose touch with all your friends, but your remaining friends will find you risible for the degree at which you talk about yourself. <laughs> he said in a podcast of his own device. <laughs> <laughs> So here we are. This is uh, an interview with Sarah, who is, I think, an absolutely fascinating comedian and a fascinating artist as well. She really has a, a sense of comedy as part of a, an artistic or a creative tradition that is, is really excitingly articulated. Uh, this is a chat about her life, and the second half in particular has got some really good in-depth explorations of her working processes and some of the principles to which she adheres. She's probably the person I've interviewed so far who has the most considered and articulate theories about her comedy. Um, we're going to be talking about the, the sleep state when one is half awake and how that can be very fecund uh, for, for creativity. We'll talk about the pursuit of happiness something many of you know is dear to my heart. Uh, how do you be happy whilst being a stand-up comedian? She seems uh, to have some... She's really got her head screwed on about this. Uh, we'll talk about the real the relationship between realism and truth, uh, how male comics are often atrocious. Uh, we'll talk about what Sarah would do if there was an apocalypse and she had the resources of a primary school, uh, which is a fascinating way of looking at things. I think it's very interesting. Um, we can talk about improvisation and some really exciting, some really very interesting... As a, I mean, I improvise myself on stage, but I'm not an improviser. I don't go and do impro, so to speak. Um, but uh, from Sarah's description of it, she's really uh, sort of piqued my curiosity there. Uh, and there's also some really good examples where we look at Sarah's notebook and we work alongside her on some ideas for some new things and where she might take them next. Um, this is sort of nominally series two, which all that really means is there's been a break. Uh, I've decided I'm going to intersperse the live recordings that I took at Edinburgh with some pre-recorded ones, maybe alternately, maybe differently, um, with these kind of... Uh, with the regular ones you're listening to, you're used to, the more sort of knocked up in my shed kind of ones. Uh, the comedy community seems to be taking this podcast very much to heart, which is brilliant, so thank you everybody. Um, lots of acts are approaching me about being on the show, which I'm very excited about. Um, often I'll be working with someone and they'll say they like the show, which is always very nice to hear. Here's a little fun thing though, just so I can separate acts who want to be on this podcast because they think it'd be good for their careers from acts who want to be on this podcast because they actually listen to the show, I've got a little plan. Now I'm not making a value judgment there. I don't imagine it would be useful for anyone's career particularly to be uh, on this podcast, but it's, it's always an interesting chat and I'm, I'm very flattered that anyone wants to come on and do it with me. Um, but uh, I, I'm not sort of judging people who don't listen to the show, but obviously you who do listen to the show are better. You're all super goldsmiths. So if you're... I'm beginning to regret ever mentioning that again. Um, 
if you are an act and you want to be on this show, if you are, and I'm, I'm sort of talking to headliners here, I'm going to do this open spot special as and when I get round to it. I, I sort of didn't realise in advance how much more faff an organisation it would take to do an episode with lots of conversations, more fool me. Um, but I'll be doing an open spot special before too long, a newer act special as well. But this is really to, to headliners if you're if you're into the show or anyone that anyone that's pro, basically any any level of pro. Um, I know now there'll be open spots going. I once got paid twenty quid. I'm in. I'll leave it to your conscience to decide. The point is, if you're an act and you want to be on this podcast, when you see me, and there's no need to email me, I'll get round to everyone in good time, and I'm already getting a lot of correspondence from open spots, but when you see me, just say at some point in our conversation, I'd be pleased for you to introduce me to your beautiful daughter. That's the key phrase, okay? Then I'll know that you're a listener and you get uh, priority booking on the show, so to speak. So the phrase is, I'd be pleased for you to introduce me to your beautiful daughter. I just thought it'd be fun, really. Well, so I'll see. I'll get to see how many people actually listen to it and how many just want to go on it. Um, but this is this is not all aimed at comics, this show. It's not all just aimed for comedians. I feel like I've got a bit of a foothold here. Um, but I think this show should be interesting to other non-comedy-doing people as well. So please, you, the listener now, you, yes, you, please do me a favour, right? Bear in mind, this podcast doesn't, uh, doesn't earn me any money. In fact, it costs me money to produce, and I, I don't charge you for listening to it. I don't even advertise. Um, in fact, if you do know how to make money from a podcast, please get in touch. Uh, someone did once, but they sent me, it was a very kind of, it was my first episode, and they said, thanks for your many hours of podcasting. And I thought, you haven't even listened. Um, but if anyone is interested or, or knows how to monetize podcasts, I'd be fascinated to see how I could turn this into cash. Uh, so anyway, sorry, I'm a bit, I'm excited. I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, uh, so bear in mind, that this podcast costs me money and I don't make anything, until I work out how to make money from it, do me a favour. If you're a fan of the show, do this one thing for me, right? Think of a friend who would like the show, who you think would enjoy it. Not a comedian, a real human person, okay? Picture their face. Think of a person. Have you got it? Someone that you know is interested in comedy and would be interested in, in learning how it's created. Think of that person. And now choose your favourite episode of the ones so far and post a link to that episode on your friend's Facebook page and let's get some humans on board. All right? So I'd really appreciate it if you did that. I really would, I'm keen to spread this out to people who aren't already comedians, uh, much as I love all of you comedy people who are currently listening. So here we go. Uh, let's get back to Sarah Pascoe. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So you were talking about uh, campaigning, that campaigning attitude. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Uh, you saw stand-up initially as less of a means of making people like you yes. and more of a means of transmitting the message that you wanted. Okay, I'll be honest with you. I want to be a politician when I'm older 
and um, this is all an overarching plan <laughs> to get better. I can't tell you people. people. I no, can't I'm not tell joking. You're joking. No, no, I'm not joking. My plan is 30s novels. I'm in 31 now, so I'm about to get to novels. I'm going to write some novels, and we live in France. And then at 40, I want to do another degree. I need. To, I want to do PPE at LSE, okay. which is a lot of letters. And um, then I'm going to be a politician from my 40s onwards. And stand-up. So basically, my plan is to get really, really good at stand-up, because the funnier you are, the longer someone will listen to you. If you can make people laugh, you can be incredibly earnest. People do, are doing incredible things where, whether you agree with them or not, you listen to their opinion on something. And like, um, there's this 16th century tract where um, universities were deciding whether they should admit humanities as subjects because, and um, this guy called Philip Sidney wrote, it's called In Defense of Poesy. Mm-hmm. And he said, if you make someone enjoy themselves, they learn so much more. And that's why stand-up is incredibly powerful. No one has to use it for power. We can all just do dick jokes if we want as well. I don't think that everyone should do it, but for me, I felt, and I'm not there yet. And every year my show is getting a little bit more, I will allow myself to like mention that I'm vegetarian and do one joke. Whereas ideally, I would come out and do an hour of like, you bastards, how can you do this to me? At the end of which you'd have been so charismatic and funny that people would walk away going, this really is going to change my well, life. Next year because show, you've been yeah. funny rather than because yes. you've gone, you bastards. My show next year, I want to do about eating meat because it's so important that we eat meat as a species. It's why we have a conscious brain. We're only one of these three species that um, went from herbivore to carnivore or vice versa. And giant pandas were carnivores, now they're herbivores and they're dying out. Like, it's really fascinating. I don't think that we shouldn't eat meat, but farming's like really fucked up. Mm. I'm gonna find a really funny way <laughs> talking about it so that no one feels lectured and that's my next chin show. Sure, it's called You Be The Chicken. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> you Be The Chicken. So there's a lot of autobiography in your work as well. As I really it is noticed. now, but I never used yeah. to do. I used okay. to feel really like, why would anyone want to know anything? My first, so I've only done that for five years. I've only started in the last eight months saying anything true about myself. Really? Yeah. Just in the last eight months? Yeah. Okay. So this, you're, so you're, this show is all true, but before that, I honestly thought, why would anyone care? Okay. Or be interested. So just for a bit of context for yeah. people who haven't seen the, sh- the one or yeah. two people here who have not seen it. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the show is called Sarah Pascoe, The Musical. Mm-hmm. And it's about, it's, a, it's, a, it's your life story. Yeah. And it's not a musical, it contains musical elements, yeah, which I think is very deft and very, I love the way you do those, are very exciting. I, I heartily recommend the show. But, um, but it is, it's, a, it's, uh, it's one long story about various things you got up to yeah. in your adolescence. But actually what it is, although I don't say it, because you should never be explicit, like if someone says to you, and that's why I'm a comedian. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we got that. Just so, we got that from all the reasons you're a comedian that you told us. So, but essentially, I'm. I was a, a liar at school. I got in a lot of um, problems because I. My first thought is to make say the most interesting thing. Like that part of my brain, and that's why I'm a comedian. It's that part. It's, I never have writer's block. I can always make shit up, and I have to stop myself as an adult telling people stories that they have told me happened to them, as if they'd happened to me. Yes. When anything happens, like, and, uh, and I still have this urge when someone goes, are we in Tesco and something will happen? And then I'll go, it would be much better if I'd said that. And when I tell the story, it's like, and then she said, and then I was like, duh, duh, duh. <laughs> and then the man fell off his stool. And then, but now that I say that on stage rather than to people. Okay. So this, well, this is what I was going so, to ask. Given, yeah. given that it's a true story, yeah. how true is it? How much poetic license is there in the events? Have you yeah. have you taken certain true events yeah. and kind of tickled them up to you know to increase the jeopardy or what? Um, the one thing I've done is changed the end of. So I, my first boyfriend um, 
uh, kind of split up with me without telling me, and I didn't realise that could happen, because I was a teenager, and I thought, if someone loved you, and they said that you were going to get married, and you were 16, that was pretty much going to happen. And so it was this real surprise when um, he just started going out with someone else, and um, didn't talk to me about it, and then I haven't seen him since I was a teenager. Sure. But then we did meet up again. But the actual real story that happened is really dull because we went to Brighton, he's married with three children, and then he started sending me sexual text messages, which were really inappropriate, and he's a vicar <laughs> in a really weird church. And so eventually I sent a text back, he sent me a, a sexual text message that he was in. I never ever replied to them, it was so inappropriate. And he, and also I was like, eight years too late. Like, 17 year old me would have died for this. And, um, so he sent me a text message that he was in a hotel room masturbating, uh, reading Ernest Hemingway, drinking red wine. <laughs> <laughs> he was an amazing guy. He could really multitask. <laughs> and he said, um, I wish you were here. And I wrote back, don't worry, God is with you. And he wrote back, wow. And that's the last contact I've had. But he lives in New Zealand, which is why I'm thinking it's all right to do a show about him. I use his real name and everything. But anyway, that, that, that ending never really kind of, so I had to kind of just make the essence of how I was, the kind of, we got back in contact. So I had to do okay. something, but that story was too long. The, the more interesting thing is all the stuff I really wanted to talk about, I've had to take out. How my parents met, I had to take out. Okay. Because people, were split, half of them felt sorry for me and half of them thought I was making it up. Okay. And no one was a, laughing. Is that because it's a particularly outlandish... My dad is a pop star in the 70s and okay. my mum stalked him. <laughs> um, <laughs> and she was And he, um, he wasn't like famous famous but they were on top of the pops once and he had a TV show with Pauline Quirk and my mum decided, she, she saw him on television, decided she was going to marry him. Right. And she did. <laughs> so she was 14, she slept outside his house in Dagenham with lots of other girls. But basically what she did is she wore him down. And when the band split up, and they, she waited until they were no longer famous, she was the last person turning up outside his mum's house. And eventually he relented, and then they got pregnant with me really early on. So my mum was 18, and my dad was 20, okay. and then they had me. And um, I kind of ruined their lives, and um, with hilarious consequences. Like uh, so it was all about kind of oh, I wonder why that didn't work out between those two. But in my show, it just made people just thought I was. And also, the, story, the other story was because I ran away to meet Robbie Williams when I was fourteen because I thought this is how you got a boyfriend. <laughs> well, to be fair, with a certain amount yeah, of previous, yeah, because you do. I still think I'm going to marry someone incredibly famous. Like, I just felt like it was my destiny. And so Robbie left Take That, and he presented the big breakfast for five days. And me and my sister ran away. Instead of going to school every morning, my mum was so angry with us, but we thought she was being a hypocrite. So we stole money from her purse, and we went... She, and we're like, what's dangerous about sleeping by the canal in Stratford? <laughs> and um, we, we waited there every day with all of these other girls. Just when he came, he came out, he talked to us, and I made eye contact with him, and I was like, it's on. Like, I'm too young now. Now, but there is a frizz on, he knows. You just need to be the last woman waiting yes. after then, he stops When I was down. 19, I worked with his dad in a hotel as a backing singer, his dad Pete Conway, and then I was like, this is definitely on now. I'm friends with his dad, any minute now he'll be popping by in a helicopter. But I had to cut all of that stuff from my show because people were reacting like it was really dark, whereas I thought it was kind of 
That's what teenagers do, they delude themselves sure. and I people mean, run away and people have unhappy relationships that result in children. Just those stories feels like next year's show anyway. That's a think? whole other, yeah, absolutely. I that's think the, you guys are much nicer than anyone I did a preview to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that's very, yeah. that is very difficult, that, that thing of previewing a show mm. and trying to guess Try, trying to determine people's reactions. Let's talk about that for mm. a minute. If you're, because the stuff you do, I mean, it's interesting hearing you say, um, you know, my stuff is true, but you, you actually said you have to delete true things because they sound outlandish or they sound yeah. too much. Whereas I sort of always imagine, or maybe you're the same, uh, is that you'd sort of think, oh, a, you know, a boring true thing happened and I had to add stuff to it for the sake of personalizing. Yeah. I mean, do you, know you ever what? do that? But do you know what? This is the thing, it's not about boring, it's about honesty. Because actually, if anyone, tells you exactly what is going on in their actual brain, their inner monologue, it's fascinating. Everyone's psyche is fascinating. The comics who I find really dull is because they're not actually being very emotionally honest. There's nothing more intoxicating than someone kind of opening a vein and going, and this is actually how it felt. Yeah. And it was this, and I didn't have the emotion. Um, yeah, so what you're doing with the writing is finding a way to communicate as close to the truth as you can how something felt and that's connecting with other human beings and then that's really fascinating you can tell me the most boring story sure but if you if i'm getting inside your head while you're there it's really amazing yeah do you understand yeah absolutely um so i just think it's that if you, have you yeah so there's two ways of doing it you can make big external exciting stuff happen or you can make internal things sure. happen because that's the thing um the story could be i spilled spilled some milk but your emotional reaction to that and mm. everything that spreads out of it, it's like Proust. Yeah? Yeah, guys? <laughs> How long is she going to until she brings up Proust? <laughs> um, Proust wrote, wrote an entire book about um, a bit of cake and some lime blossom tea mm. given to him when he was ill in bed as a child by an aunt. And the taste of it made him realise he wasn't the only person in the world. And it, okay. the book kind of splits out like that from this bed that he's in. And then, so, and then it's like the house and his family, and he kind of understands his parents, and then it's the rest of the town and all of these characters and the mm. architecture. And that's a book mm. from a taste sensation. Sure. So is there, is there, obviously what you're saying completely makes sense mm. from the point of view of, of revealing the inner life. Yeah translating that into stand-up comedy, yeah. translating that into something that's funny, yeah. I think maybe that's where a lot of people, I've certainly guilty yeah. of this myself, you end up, I mean, you don't want to ever generalise, no. but at the same time, you're trying to strike a chord with people that's not yeah. simply striking a chord and having people go, oh, I understand yeah. that, or oh, I felt that myself, well, but it yeah. has to be satisfying and yes. surprising. Yes. So let's talk about that. How is that translated? There's two into ways of doing that, because people do the thing of like, you know when you're on a bus, right? And yes, we know when you're on a bus, so we're all there. Or they do the emotional thing, which is happy, sad, lost, confused, didn't think I was clever enough. Yeah. I was the best. Maybe that's me. And that's sometimes where I lose people. So we're not as good as you, Sarah. We don't know what you're talking about. Um, so, that, yeah, that's the two ways. Because but laughter is an interesting thing. So have you read any books about why we laugh as a species? Uh, yes, uh, like Desmond Morris. Yes, so it's really yeah. fascinating. Because um, we laugh to reassure each other that everything's fine. It's why we laugh a lot with groups and very rarely on our own because there's no point. We laugh to, to say to people around us, everything's fine. And we do it for different reasons. We do it for wordplay, when our brain corrects what was wrong. And that's why there's always a gap. With a great comic, there's a gap between them finishing, our brains working it out, and the laugh. 
And um, the, apparently the longer that gap is, the bigger the laugh, because we're more satisfied that we've done all that clever brain work and put it all back together and now the world is fine again. Mm. It's why we laugh when someone falls over and it's fine, but we never laugh if someone falls over and it, the old person they've hurt themselves. Mm. It's exactly the same thing, but it's not, that's not fine, it's not funny. We laugh to go, fell over, oh, ha, 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 you're fine. And it's why people laugh, this is, and audiences, it's, sometimes you don't know you're doing crap because you laugh to reassure someone. So if you're doing new stuff, sometimes you'll go, oh, that didn't work. And everyone goes, ha, 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 You think, great, I'm storming this. Yeah. <laughs> that's a big laugh. Where actually everyone's going, it's fine. We still like you. Carry on. Keep trying. Um, and then you have this laugh of recognition. And someone is describing something. And the laughter like, yes, kettles do take ages to boil water. Yeah. Why do we just walk around doing our lives without talking about this? <laughs> Literally no one ever talks to me about how long my kettle takes to boil water, and that's the other part. It's really lovely when you suddenly go, yeah, I understand that. So mm. we are all the same human beings. <laughs> that's a great <laughs> conclusion just at that point, yeah. I mean. um, so, so trying to, so what's the journey then of, of finding, you know, of, of describing an experience where you spilled some milk mm. and trying to make that funny? To try and go, okay, this is a thing. I've got to be honest about the things I feel yeah. about this Well, that's situation. one way, because the other way is because people are, Oh, this is abstract is what we should talk about as well, because mm -hmm. it's, it's the same as painting. Something doesn't have to be realism to be about truth. So there are abstract comics who do this amazingly, where they tell you a story where they spilled some milk, and then the goat started talking to them, and then they went through the mirror, and then the landlady was really angry, and they do that, but the essences, the emotions of that story are all about truth. Okay. And that's why it's still funny. And, sure. and, and when people do that really badly, which is what I did when I very first started, like I said, it was all lies. Um, I was that guy, that was my material I was doing there. <laughs> I wrote that. <laughs> I did it. <laughs> You're not sure. <laughs> so, um, so abstract. So how do you do the journey? I guess, yeah, surprise is one thing that you said earlier. And... Um, because it has to be yeah. surprising, it has to be satisfying, doesn't it? Yeah. I think to get a laugh, it's got yeah. to be something surprises you, but in a satisfying way. Yeah, um, and that's why, if you can guess the punchlines, I think if you're in an audience, and I do think this is everyone, you do think you know where people are going. You can't help it. And it's why some of my favourite jokes is when you think you've done the punchline, and they know that you think you know the punchline. And so it's such a nice surprise. When, they, when anyone mentions Marmite, you go, yeah. love it or hate it. That's the yeah, first yeah. thing you think. As you're expecting, that is the punchline. Marmite is like carpets. Oh, uh, that's not a good example. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, flying with Ryanair is like Marmite. Very cheap. Because <laughs> all of us, when I said that, are going to go, you love it or you hate it. And then I'll explain how Ryanair divides people. And so, I didn't. Sure. It was a lovely surprise. Sure. So you pull the rug. <laughs> yeah, of and, course. Yeah. Cause, because, and that's the thing, really good writers, whether it's instinctual or conscious, they know what people's brains are doing because they know how their brain works. So you can manipulate that. <laughs>
and about how fear can be the enemy of good work on stage. Uh, Do you, as someone who is primarily concerned, like I, I, I worry that when I'm doing stand-up comedy, I'm too concerned with being loved. Mm. I'm basically transmitting, love me, love me, like me, like me, and you know, maybe if I say clever enough, funny enough stuff, then all these strangers will approve yeah. of me. And seeing as you seem to come from it from a very different angle of saying, I want these people to understand yeah. the thing, do you think that gives you a different type of fear on stage? Yes, I think, I think, but what's interesting is I think the comedians end up with the audiences they deserve and that want to do the thing they need them to do. So you need to be <laughs> a liked. A lot of these people got in free. <laughs> <laughs> but you need to be liked on stage and you will end up touring to lots of people who really are invested in you and want to like you sure. and want to please you by liking you. Does that make sense? Sure, unless I manage to break out of this thing, which I have at least yeah. spotted and yes. want to not but do But there's no anymore. reason yeah. you have to. I feel like you can't fake who you are. Stand-up should end up being you at your purest because you are working yeah. on you all of the time. If you try and be a different you, everyone knows you're phony. Mm -hmm. and not just you, everyone. Like We sniff mm -hmm. it. We, we, are, we read people's body language. We know when someone's lying to us. And if someone's trying to fake that they're like, hey, I'm really up and jolly, and it's really great to be here, guys, you're like, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're dead inside. Here's you're a little thing. Over the rest of the festival, silently, without shouting it out, every time you see any more stand-up, see if you can work out how honest it is. That's quite an interesting yeah. game to play, yeah. yeah. Who's them on stage, and who is it? Yeah. And um, I'll tell you why I, my fear, I don't know, but I'll tell you why I, I, I try, how I deal with my fear. I am content with mediocrity. I do not need to be the best. Okay. I don't need to be the best at a gig. I don't need to be the best in my life. I'm just a human being who is trying to get better at a thing. Yes. So I am, and I'm not a perfectionist in any way, shape or form. I think perfectionism is crippling. I've, I've still, I'm 31, I've not done anything in my life that I could show you and go, I'm really proud of that thing I wrote or that thing I did. But I think life is about hope. I want to, be like 65 or 70 and be in a play at the Royal Court and be like, that I was good in that. Yeah. Like, that's how I want to live my life. I never want to peak now. And the contempt with me jobs to thing, when I have a bad gig, it's like, what do you expect? You're learning. Or, mm. yeah, you made a mistake there, which you will now try to learn from. Do you, do you mean do you mean mediocrity? Do you mean yeah, sort do. of average? Because that, that resonates with me for a, a thing from cognitive behavioural therapy, yeah. which is to dare to be average, yeah. which is a means of trying to undermine your own perfectionism. Mm. If you really can't be happy unless you've made it. I mean, I've seen, I, I saw a, a very famous comedian before they were famous come off stage and they just smashed the gig to bits and they came off and they were kicking the wall going on, for God's sake. There's a lot of those work. guys. There's an awful lot and of that and that's very seductive. wearing. And they, yeah, are, yeah. and they are children, and no one tells them. Yeah. They, again, you end up with the audience you deserve. They end up with these entourages of yes people. And if you ever dare to say something like that, I think you're being very rude. Yeah. They will never talk to you again. Yeah. Like, and they'll be like, I can't believe that person did that. Yeah. And it's really disgusting. And also, no one ever tells pretty people off. You're pretty, do you get told off? Uh, not often. No, okay. No one tells the pretty boys off. They get away. They treat women You're pretty appallingly. As well, okay, the pretty boys. I am a very good human being. I don't go around sleeping with lots of boys that I meet at gigs. Um, the, the, the I mean, boys no one do. tells the pretty boys off for sleeping with lots oh, of girls. They are atrocious. I have had friends who have gone out of a male comic and found out he was going out with someone else, like in the toilets when they've gone to watch his gig, and another girl has invited them both to his gig, wow. is talking in the toilets about her boyfriend who's just been on stage. Like, they're 
Honestly, really, really messed up human being. I feel like this is an unspoken question as to whether or not I've done that. I haven't. I'm not that quick. Wouldn't it be great if that was both of our our students who were both pretending? So it was me who came off stage and smashed stuff up. I was like, oh, really? You're telling that anecdote? Well, I'm going to tell the one about the girls in the toilets. Um, so, yeah, um, you were yeah. saying, so no one, no no one tells, tells them, them pretty quickly. Yeah. So, yeah, you kind of, you hate them privately. Everyone goes, oh, yeah, he's such a dick. Yeah. But no one ever goes, oh, I think you're behaving really badly to people. They just, yeah. like, let them get away with it. And it's like, I guess with music as well, you think, oh, someone's creative. If they're, like, an artist, then you can be an asshole. Or it must be such a difficult process. Of course you don't just, like, be polite to people. Mm. No, that's completely there's a, there's a street performer friend of mine called Dirty Fred. Who uh, he's very wonderful. You should try and check him out. He's, he's from America. I don't know if he'll be here this year. Um, but he apparently said, I've heard this secondhand. But performers are very fond of the fact that I forget people's names. Oh, it's because I meet a lot of people. Oh, I'm so sorry. I've forgotten your name for the nth time. I'm sorry. I meet a lot of people. Dirty Fred is keen to point out everybody meets a lot of people. It's just <laughs> performers are dicks. <laughs> That's effective. Yeah. So but the reason I mention that that yeah. kind of like that that sort of never happy, that perfectionist yeah. attitude, is in, in cognitive behavioural therapy, there's this thing called dare to be average, or it's a, you know, a chapter yeah. of a book. Dare to be average, yeah. because you will end up making better work when you're happy and relaxed, because yeah. your goal is no longer to be the best thing. Yeah. Is that the sort of thing you mean? Because mediocrity means, yeah. seems like quite a mean way of describing But that. I think that's something I'm happy with. Okay. Like, because if I'm, just now, like, that's the thing, if you focus on this end goal, as in like, I want to be brilliant at sound, I want to be Stuart Lee in 20 years. Yeah. Okay. What you don't see is the whole process that it takes to become Stuart Lee. You just go, oh, I'm so focused on that and I'm so bad in comparison. But yes. yeah, that doesn't make you want to write anything. Sure. Or, um, and so instead you just take that away and go, I'm never going to be Stuart Lee, but I am going to be slightly better in 20 mm. years than I am now. Yeah. And if that's never that good, that's still fine because I enjoy this and that makes me happy. Yeah. And that's what I think we forget as well. People, I mean, not just comedians. You know, being happy is the point, yes. isn't it? Yeah. And, and you think, no, it's because um, I'll be able to get that job and then I'll have that money. Or, yeah, why do you or, want the or, job or the money people, or the fame if not to make you yeah, happy? Yeah, because actually yeah. you might be happier if you went swimming more and bought a bike. But actually your life might be nicer. I'm, and that's I, a solvable thing. Or if you just ate better. Like, yeah. people might be happier, drank less, slept more, yeah. got into, like, German cinema. Like, it might actually <laughs> enrich your life more than that job would or that money would. Yeah. And, but we never go, okay, what is it? actually would make me happy. Getting a pet, guys. <laughs> Do you hear me? So we've been less than life here. What I'm going to be like when I'm Prime Minister. Yeah. <laughs> okay, NHS is closed, but it's <laughs> pet bursaries. <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about this thing you oh, yeah. said about uh, that Tim, Tim Key, Key told you about audiences. Yes. I think that's absolutely fascinating from how yeah. a festival experience yes. works. Right, um, the thing is, comics are really supportive of each other, don't you find? Mm-hmm. Like, Definitely. So we, Far more so than you'd expect. Yeah. You would think it would be sort of bitchy and backbitey. Yeah. And it's those, those it's amazing nice support network because everyone knows how difficult our job is and that it goes badly sometimes. And I find it so wonderful in the fact that everyone we're always show, we're all trying to work out what the hell we're doing and how to do it better. And so Tim Key said to me last year, and he's obviously so successful now, and I think it's his seventh or eighth Edinburgh. I think so, yeah. And he said to me that you don't really get good until over 50% of your audience or do you think you're good? Because once over, so basically, if no one in the room knows who you are, you're very new, you have some convincing to do, and sometimes that won't work. And if 30% of the people already like you, there's still more people in the room who are kind of cr- cross-armed thinking, okay, 
I'm God, you could I'm be paid. you could yeah, yeah I've paid, yeah. you could still be shit, or could decide you are shit when you're starved. If over fifty percent of them have seen you before or come because they've heard you're famous or a TV program or seen you something else, then actually it's much more likely that the people who don't know who you are are going to be convinced that way than the other way around. And then you can just do the work that you want to do. Like it's yeah. in a vacuum. Like I always think um, I always test myself, like if there was an apocalypse and it was just me and the resources of a primary school what would I make if there was an absence of audience? And that should be what you make anyway. Okay. And I think that's what happens. If over 50% of, because you don't have to compromise as much, you can go, right, I think this is brilliant, and I'm going to talk to you about it for an hour. And if 50% of the over 50, half of those people agree that you are brilliant, they'll go, this is really weird, but I trust you are better than me. Yeah. And so you know what you're doing. Sure. That's I mean, the yeah. reason that came up in conversation, I think, was because we were talking about sometimes it can feel grinding the process of coming up here and performing a new hour every year you spend all year writing that hour you worry that your your normal bread and butter gigs at commercial comedy clubs at the weekends you're not doing your best stuff at those gigs because you're always running in new stuff to fill this hour-long void that reappears every september and for a lot of people it's phenomenally expensive to come up here as well and it keeps you in relative poverty given how much work you're doing so i think it's really interesting looking at that from the point of view of I mean, I remember being told, okay, like when I came up with a sketch show, we did two years worth, and we kind of went, well, no one's really noticed this. No, mm. Nothing's really happened as a result. And I think you've got to come, someone told me you've got to come up for three years to prove that you're serious. Yeah. And then you've got to be, you're being good every single time. And then your fourth year, you've got to be really, really good. So they go, oh, right, oh, they really mean it. And then in your fifth year, things can happen. And that, you know, looking at that financially, you might go, oh, well, that's yeah. going to cost me 60 grand over the you next five years. That's my plans <laughs> at that deficit. I, I say two things. Number one, there is no science to Edinburgh. And every year we get another thing like, okay, it's all about year four. <laughs> and actually there is no science. Some people are just really brilliant at it straight away and it works and there's yeah. an audience for them and other people come for much longer than four years and are consistently good. And I had my hair cut and she was like, who do, who do you recommend? Scottish. And, um, <laughs> and then I was recommending, I could see her just going glazed over as in she doesn't want to see any of those people that she hasn't heard of. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to say, how many of my friends have second jobs as in they work nine to five they get up at eight or seven they go do a job but they then drive to somerset do a gig come home have two hours sleep to pay for edinburgh and there's a thing i think sometimes the things that we do that are bad in our shows or why people really suffer is they do pay a fortune for it you pay before you come and then you pay for it afterwards and that is why some of them are like so it's so hard yeah because I think audiences, why would you not? Like, you see this huge poster of someone that someone's made and all this money put into them. Of course you assume everyone's professional. Let's talk about, uh, about jokes, about making material. Oh, yeah. Um, I've asked you to bring you a notebook with yeah. you, which we'll have a look at. Yeah, um, I bought two, because this is my next year's show. Okay, oh, so you've got next year's show with you in a book. I've got some notes, of, yes. Okay. And it says, I am the notebook of truth. Yeah, because my show next year is called Sarah Pascoe versus The Truth. Okay, so you've got your title already at this yes. stage. Yes, I was going to do it this year. It's the vegetarian show, but um, okay. it, I couldn't make it funny enough. And I don't think I'm good enough yet to actually talk about it, but I think I definitely will be in 12 months. <laughs> <laughs> That's all it will take. Um, so 
you are a you're a writing things down person. Yes. Lots of people. I always have been. Got very... I, this thing, never said a thing about everything I've done in my life has prepared me to be do stand up. I yeah. have diarized my entire life. You have. You since were... I can write, and I keep more than one diary. I keep an emotional diary for big events. I had an acting diary for every drama lesson, every play I was in, every assembly, which I analysed to make myself better. And then I had my day to day logistics, like where was I? How did I feel? Why did he say that? Um, so that's three diaries minimum. And then when I started acting, I wrote up every audition. It had to be A4. I was really strict on myself. You have to write A4. And then I would click the audition thing to it, and then I have a huge folder of those. Mm -hmm. And um, so all that's happened, I've always written every day about myself. Okay. And then I was like, there's a job. Yes, there's a go. job where all of this makes sense. So I got up, and uh, why did you say that? And uh, like, yeah. I just completely prepared for it. So that's the thing is, again, when people talk about finding writing, writing difficult, I don't have that. Yes, okay. So something a lot of people, a lot of comics that I talk to say is that they're either a writer first and a performer second, or the other way around. Yeah. You're obviously a writer, writer, first. A writer yeah. first. So when you have ideas, do they always, how does the idea crystallise? Let's try and plot that journey. So <laughs> you, you see a thing, or you remember yeah. a thing? Or you think you... of it, yeah. Okay. I, think, I think it's much more just, it kind of occurs to me. I think it's to do with um, sleep state, I would say quite a lot. Okay. The bit just before you fall asleep, or the bit when you wake up and you're worried, that's when I think I get ideas. And I think quite often something's bubbling there, you're not even conscious of, you never actually look at it directly. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of half written itself. Do you have that? Yes, sense? yes, yeah. I do, yeah. And um, Samuel Beckett said that the only time you could be truly creative, um, you were actually paralysed. Do you have this? I think everyone has this, it's a human being thing, but there's this moment, it's almost like a microsecond, and it's almost like you're not thinking. Okay. Like there's just this kind of blank state happens, and um, he tried for his entire life to move in that moment, because he thought that was the only time he could actually write the truth. Okay. But. Conversely, it was the only time you were actually in tune with the universe and understood everything. Was just that kind of, and then it's like a brief again. moment of yes. nirvana, just yeah. a flash of yeah. sort of stasis. And he wanted okay. to learn, and he thought he could be able to extend it through meditation stuff. But, you know, okay. So what? So how much time do you spend ruminating on an idea, or do you have the idea and immediately get it down on paper I, and start writing? Uh, I wouldn't write it up. I would write down the notes. So I have long lists of, and they will say like, in, they have little stars by and say idea, fem fresh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And I know what that means. <laughs> so I found fresh out of that and I thought, it was disgusting. <laughs> and so I thought, that's the thing, that's the kind of thing I would write a thing about. Okay. Because it's about, oh my God, vaginas are disgusting, buy expensive stuff so that no one can smell we've got one. That's the kind of thing I would talk about on stage. Because um, the advert, have you seen it? It says, um, woohoo for your frou-frou. Yeah, it's this it's, intensely patronising... Yeah, it's yeah. really, but it's also a frou-frou. Like, they just say, for your genitals. Like, we're adults. I just think it's such a weird thing. Anyway, so obviously that's not written, but it's the kind of thing I will, would talk about in a really funny way. Okay, so, yeah. so, so you, I've just you've written, that down. So you've written Femfresh, and then yes. do, you, do you write around that subject? Do you expand that subject? Do you improvise on stage around that subject? What, what's the All of those project? things. Okay. So, um, if I'm having a gig that's going really well, which is most of them, um, I will go off on a stream of consciousness and then I love it because um, I think you can trust that if you talk for long enough, you will be funny at the end of it. Okay. I trust that in myself. Okay. That's a very, I actually am embarrassed I've said that because that wasn't even joking arrogance. That was <laughs> I'm very good at this. That's joke. okay. This is no I just, I'm not scared of the little bit where you're talking about the Femme Fresh advert because I know at the end I'll find some way of making that funny. Okay. 
and that's born of experience as a stand-up comic no, or ex life experience? I'm okay. an improviser. Okay. Like in a theatrical improvising yes, kind of Yes, I'm in an improv group and I started improv and I read improv books. And improv is the most amazing thing for creativity because it's all about um, throwing things away and not stopping yourself and um, never thinking. And sure. It's always about making someone else look good, which is actually a wonderful thing to be as a human being. Yeah. You've always got everyone's back. Um, you'll never watch anyone flounder, you never enjoy someone else doing badly. If you don't want to enter a scene, that means you have to. Because yeah, okay. if you're going, fuck, this is... Like the minute you have that thing of this is going bad, it means, which means they need me to yeah, kind of okay, help them. It's okay. all so positive. And, sure. and it also just has a thing where you go, the human brain is amazing. It finds patterns. Just because I don't know where this is going at the beginning, I will by the end of it. And also improvising is just talking. And children are amazing at it because we unlearn how to play and tell stories to each other yes. throughout our adolescence. And then as adults, we can't do it all. We have to learn to do it again. Yeah. Children are amazing improvisers. It's the most Absolutely. awful thing sometimes yeah. I find and when, comedians. I'm, when, amazing I'm, comedians. when I'm playing with my godson, uh, I've got a very strong relationship with my little seven-year-old godson, and we play this zombie game in the park where with him and whoever mates around the swings, and I start pretending to be quite a realistic zombie. And uh, chasing after them, they all run away scared, they've all got a certain number of lives, the game has kind of adapted and moved on. But I keep finding myself blocked in a way that I wouldn't have been when I was a kid because I'm busy playing the game, mm. kind of showing off to other adults. Yeah. And you know, but uh, kind of look how well I'm getting on with the kids. <laughs> and uh, but I, I, I find I'm doing that, but as I'm doing it, I'm also blocked in the game by kind of going, I'm old now and I can't be bothered to climb up that thing. Which by these rules, but you have to climb it now. You, know I mean? yeah. you have to kind of get yeah. back to that childlike. And they do a thing in Bikram Yoga where it's like um, it's the exercise, it's the postures you least enjoy that you need the most. Yes. Because actually, yes. If it's difficult for your body. It means because that's because you're tense there, and you need to. And the only way to get out of that is to do that posture. Yeah. Okay. And, and to tell yourself, I really need this. Yes. Than, oh, God, it's this one. That's a really good rule in comedy, isn't it? Because yeah. going towards the awkwardness and going yeah. towards the, the silence and the risk of disapproval yeah. and all of those things. And also that's what you mean, isn't also it? Also, again, oh. the things about calling things. I think why we're not, we shouldn't be scared of people. If you, if you talk about something and you kind of feel like you've lost people's attention, I think you then say, I feel like I've lost your attention because you're not interested in this thing. And again, it's the honesty thing. I think then you yeah. get people back because you're talking to them. Yes. Again, about something they are interested in, which is them. Yes, okay. Like, why Stuart Lee is so brilliant is because he does amazing comedy while also analysing his comedy mm -hmm. and letting you into it. Yes. And talk, dissecting you as an audience and how you're responding to it. Absolutely. So it's always engaging, whether you're engaging yeah. with that on that well, level or that yeah, level, or one about you. Yeah. Or, yeah. Okay. <laughs>
maybe, unless someone's done it. Yeah, I didn't understand the moguls will attack from I don't, I mean, I didn't understand it. Okay, fine. I mean, this is what I mean. But you I'm could, you could shrink it, it and go, look, I'm going to be late, so and also correct it to, yes. sorry, I was late. No. 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 Uh, Nostradamus said that um, the end of the world will be when the moguls... Is that, uh, I don't think moguls is the right word. Okay. But basically, people who lived near China in the mountains, okay. they would attack the West. Mongols? Maybe that's As it. As in Mongolian? Yes, yeah, that's okay. what it is. And I think my brain went, you can't say Mongols on stage. <laughs> 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 say Mongols? That sounds more okay. businessy. Mon so, so what I mean is, um, uh, so predictive text, you say, sorry Laura, I'm running late, and it says, you will die when you're 72. <laughs> that. See? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. 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 Go on, so really, it's predicting the future. Okay. So that's how good iPhones get. Sure. But, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> or like, okay, I'll warn him. Like that. Okay. I think you could predict lots of futuristic things and then if you do callbacks to it later on when those things happen. Yes. Or I'm not going to get a mortgage. Why would I? I'm dying in two years. Like, so I think that's the thing. Doppelganger. Someone told me on the internet they'd see me in an advert. I don't do adverts. I'm going to be a politician and I'm really strict about it and I don't do voiceovers or anything. I, mm -hmm. um, I even hate doing gigs that have um, branding from alcohol. Um, and so someone told me they saw me in an advert. I was like, they're so desperate to have me selling products. They have got lookalikes. And I watched the advert, and she's just a blonde girl. People have blonde blindness. There are um, loads of comedians who are ladies who have blonde hair, and we all get congratulated for each other's gigs. I get Roisin Comedy, me, Casey Wilkins. Pippa Evans does it in an American accent. And, yeah, and Rachel Paris, who plays the piano. And we get, uh, um, we get tweets for each other. Oh, and Tiffany Stevenson. Okay. And we just all get it. Like my sister the other day, she saw Rachel Connerty on um, Russell Howard's Good News, and she, I went to her house. She just had a baby, and she went, um, "Oh, Sarah, I'm really sorry. Um, there's this girl, and she's so like you, but better." <laughs> and the thing is, I think actually she's talking about things that people actually understand. Yeah. And um, I don't know what's going to happen because she literally went, "I'm so sorry to tell you this, but." Your career's been taken. Yeah, yeah. There's no room for you. There's a blonde You've girl. Got a blonde. Yes. Yeah. Um, for the doppelganger thing, I had this idea that if I had someone who looked exactly like me, so I play this for real. So not like what if, like there's a girl who looks exactly like me. How can I be sure my boyfriend won't sleep with her? Because um, and is that cheating? Because he thought it was me. But it wasn't. So he has cheated on me, but I'm not allowed to be angry, which makes me furious. And um, what, when I'm out of the house, so I'll be at a gig, I'll be out of the house worrying about what he's doing. Because like, what if she says she's me? That is the kind of thing I would say. And so that's an idea. About, and again, so so what would yeah. you, what, what's the next step? Let's follow oh, okay. that idea. So okay, what do you do idea. next? Do you improvise it on stage? Yes. So the fact okay. that I've just said that out loud now makes me go, that's not that funny. <laughs> right, so that's honestly what's happened. I would do that at a new material and go, I don't think that's that funny an idea. But what I might do and try and do is set it up better, set it up quicker. Okay. And go, I don't do adverts, need to joke about adverts, but that's yeah. easy. I'll just be like, then fresh, woo. And then, um, uh, and then I'll say, but they've got someone who looks exactly like me to start doing adverts. I've got a doppelganger. If my boyfriend's sick. So I'll get there much quicker. So yes, the beginning okay. bit. And then I would sometimes I brainstorm like a thing. So you work on, you'd have, sorry, just to go yes. with the doppelganger thing, yeah. you improvise that once as you have done yeah. the ESA. Yeah. Not that this is a comedy club audience no. necessarily. But would you, would you then try, would you ever improvise it again without doing any extra work on it? Or would you, would you just think, oh, maybe that wasn't well, the I right? I think your brain does extra work even if you're not. So I wouldn't have okay. a pen in my hand 
But the fact that these things have even like occurred to me as ideas, I feel like my brain's working on them all the time. Sure, okay. So I wouldn't necessarily write it down, but I could improvise it again and it would be better. Okay, okay. Because so I, you... I, think, I think your brain is just doing maths all the time, going, that is the bit they laughed at, that's the only joke in that. Mm -hmm. Not then, but like in the scenario that we're talking about, you'd go, that's the only funny bit at that moment. So number one, end with that, because mm -hmm. at least they laughed then. And I think your brain does that already conscious, subconsciously. Gotcha, okay, yeah. And um, yes, and then um, I would write it out on a pad, and then, and so I overwrite it, obviously, you have big chunks that you end up taking out, and you could brainstorm something like in a spider diagram, and where does that go, or what does that link to? And always, if you have a, a sentence, it should have at least some joke in it. Does that make sense? Yeah, So, okay. you know, okay, I need all this, all this needs to explain, oh, I don't do adverts, but you have to have a joke there. Okay. You see? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And yes. then, and then I do a lot of typing up on computer. Some people don't use computers, but I, I do. I use a computer, and I find it quite difficult because I can end up spending a working hour really cutting and pasting and reshuffling rather than creating any new yeah. stuff. I find that could be a bit of a trap. But also, the problem is then suddenly when you're on stage, when you've really, really worked on exactly the wording, I suddenly feel like I'm saying a script. Yes. And so the first two or three times I say, I know it's better, but I feel very much in my head remembering the exact wording, which makes it a better joke. Yes. Gotcha. It's much better if it sculpts itself from, you say it 50 times, and after 50 times it's perfect, and then you remember mm -hmm. it word for word like that, mm -hmm. isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm just yes. thinking consciously of time. Are there any questions from the audience? I've got another, we can follow this for another minute or two, and I've got a sort of a final question. Hold on, there's a question over there. Thank you, sir. Well, we've been so happy lost the book. What's that? Oh, if I lost my book, would I be in trouble? Um, I... That's a, that does happen to people, does doesn't it? People, uh, yeah, Ignacio Lopez had his stolen recently. It's all, yeah, it's all really? Nice. Yeah. Well, I, there is a lot of it I wouldn't remember. And I, I like collecting things. Like I say, I've, I've always written diaries. I still have them all. And so my most satisfying things, I always use these moleskin sized pads. It's like finishing one and putting it on the shelf next to the others and going, my biographer is going to have such a nice time. <laughs> so you, I've written about everything that's happened. But you don't have any, any backups of them though, do you? If your no. house burned down, God yeah. forbid, with, I mean, what, what state would yeah. that put you in? Would well, you think, God, I've lost everything? Or would you think, I will simply create more? Again, it's just about an attitude. So that's the thing. When you lose stuff that's expensive or you lose stuff that feels personal to you, I just think you have to go, and now it's gone and there's nothing I can do. And rather than having this frustration, I can't change the things that have happened. I think I would be like, well, yes, you've lost your pad, Sarah, but you're going to write better jokes. And probably the world thought that those jokes weren't good enough. <laughs> also, maybe someone will find it and say your jokes, and they will still reach humanity. <laughs> yeah, that would be my inner monologue. Excellent, yeah. excellent. Uh, time for one more question, probably, if there is one there. Uh, if not, thank you for yours. Um, the last thing I was going to ask, because we, we really must wrap yeah. up, um, what will I ask you? What do, are you like the sort of comedian you thought you would be like when you started doing comedy? Comedy has changed my life and made me a better person and made me happy. Okay. So I had no idea. I didn't think I was going to be a comedian. Like I'm an actor. That's my actual job. And I have become one. And it so far exceeds my expectations as in I have the life of a nine-year-old. I had the exact life. I have a bicycle. I swim every day. And then I go out and laugh at people I think are really funny and who are also my friends, like people I think are amazing, I'm friends with like, and who know who I am. So incredible. And then I don't eat sweets but I do drink a lot, which is like <laughs> growing up sweet tears. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, so does that make sense? The two are so intertwined for me. 
Sure, the lifestyle and yes, the, yeah, that every single day of my life, and that's the thing. Like, I always, if I ever stopped enjoying going to gigs, I would stop doing it. I don't have to do this. Like, sure. So I would stop doing it. But at the moment, I'm still in the honeymoon period. I don't understand how anyone doesn't like it. And I think if you did, why are you doing it then? Yeah. <laughs> That's a lovely sentiment on which to finish. Um, well, I should just let you plug your show briefly. It's called Sarah Pascoe, The Musical. I know most of you have already seen it, but um, <laughs> come again. <laughs> yeah, so it's at 9.15 in the evening times at um, George Square. George Sydney. Square. It's, yeah. If you go down past the, where the uh, Spiegel tent is, down the left there and then down some stairs. Uh, it's very well worth seeing. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, would you please join me in thanking Sarah Pascoe. <laughs> So that's that until next time. I, I thought that was fascinating. That was the first live one I'd done with a with an audience bigger than about four. And uh, I was confident it would work, but also nervous. And I think actually we got a really, really good conversation out of it. And I, I had a really good time in Edinburgh. I've got some some really fascinating other shows to share with you with Josh Widdicombe, Hannibal Buress, uh, Eddie Pepito, not to mention Rod Gilbert. Terry Alderton's show was fabulous. Alan Davies, very interesting. So, and, and Pappies, oh my God. I always get stuck in this. I have to name all of them now in case they're listening and they think I don't care about them as much. They were all great. Um, but I will be releasing them every so often. Do keep bullying me on Twitter about when new episodes are coming out. I quite like that and it gets, keeps me motivated. Send in your uh, requests and your recommendations for guests, anyone you'd like to have on the show. It's info at comedianscomedian.com. Join the Facebook group if you like. You can find that easily if you're on Facebook, Comedians Comedian. Um, and please imagine that one person who you think will like the show and share it to them. Just put it on their, on their Facebook page or email them or, or send them a Facebook message with it on and let's try and sort of spread this out. That would be really awesome. And it's, uh, uh, it's not, that's not giving me money. You're not selling anything. That's the thing about marketing. You just need to give people a thing they'll like. So let's just give some stuff away. Um, I am off now. I mentioned I was excited earlier on. I'm going to go and warm up the big fat quiz of the 90s, which from the point of view of a warm up is either going to be a really awesome fun or a really long, painful five hour record. (sighs) So nonetheless, uh, that's where I'm off to. I hope you enjoy the show. I'll speak to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.